A very good afternoon, good evening to you. Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live from Salford. How are you? Hope you had a fantastic weekend. I really do. Thanks for finding me. I'm live until 6pm. I've got some very interesting things for you today. A wonderful guest coming up really soon. Welcome. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host... Richie Allen. Yeah, no, Molly Kingsley is a remarkable woman. You will have seen Molly, although not often enough, really, but you will have seen her um, in or on the conservative media uh, over the course of the last three years. She founded Us For Them UK during the COVID lockdown uh, to provide a voice for the UK's children, to ask the questions on behalf of children that they couldn't ask for themselves. The insanity of shutting down schools and forcing COVID jabs on children. So much more besides us for them. Important organisation. Now, just before Christmas, uh, the organisation published a book entitled The Accountability Deficit. How ministers and officials evaded accountability, misled the public and violated democracy during the pandemic. We'll talk to Molly about that this hour. Monday's programme, as I said, live from BBG Towers, you can get involved. If there's something you'd like to contribute, send a message via the website richieallen.co.uk or use the app. There's an app, there's an app. I'm tired of saying it. I'm tired of saying it. When I say it, you have an app. You have an... I know I've said it a million times. But do download the app. It's not not yet even a year old, uh, the app. It's on Google Play. It's on Apple's App Store. Thousands have already downloaded it. And, and they have, thousands. And listen to the show via the app. You can send a message instantly to me. It is already two minutes past the hour of four. Let's just crack on. Looking forward to Molly Kingsley. Anyway, yesterday saw me reach the milestone of two weeks. Zero booze. Nada, niente, zilch, squat, no alcohol, no problem thus far. I'm saying this and I'm going to continue with this theme throughout January, just in case it gives one person some inspiration. One person says to themselves or says out loud, if that baldy Egypt can stop, can put aside the alcohol for the month of January, well, sure, I can do it myself. Exactly. Listen, a couple of quick things to run down. Uh, the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. It began today. Do you know this? You probably do. Um, Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, the World Economic Forum will host a meeting called Wait for it, Preparing for Disease X. Now, we've heard quite a bit about Disease X. Disease X is the next pandemic, which could be five times, ten times, twenty times worse than COVID, so we better prepare for it. So the usual suspects will be there this week. The usual suspects, you can probably name them without even stretching your brain uh, too hard. Uh, World Health Organization experts, Pharma will be there. Tony Blair might be there. Bill Gates might be there. I don't know. Discussing how the world should respond to disease X. Okay. Right. We'll, we will have commentary on this as the week goes on. So they're, they're going to talk about an imaginary illness that has a mortality rate around 20 times ho- higher than COVID. 
that's happening this coming Wednesday. Just in case you think I'm not on this, I am on it. Leave it with me, we'll do something on it during the week. You might be following the news out of Deutschland, Germany, as thousands of tractors have blocked Berlin. Well, Berlin city centre. To put it, um, you know, to, to put it in context, um, farmers are protesting over a number of things, fuel subsidy cuts being one of them. Okay, rising costs, another one. Uh, the talk about how farmers will have to change their farming practices, reduce their herds and all of this stuff. All of this is going on. So about 30,000 protesters, farmers, supported by a wide range of representatives from other industries, fishing, gastronomy, logistics, and they blocked the streets around the government quarter today with vehicles including lorries, forklift trucks and even children's toy tractors. Uh, The Western media, I suppose Germany is in the West, but uh, here in the UK they are quoting a man called Joachim Ruckvied. Now he's the president of the German Farmers Union and he's calling on the German government to scrap plans to phase out fuel subsidies. He says that many farmers would be driven to bankruptcy by such a decision. Okay, he says if the government plays ball, we will withdraw the tractors. He said this outside the Brandenburg Gate there. Now, you and I believe, we're not arrogant, you and I, we're not dogmatic, we have opinions. You and I believe that farming as an enterprise has been earmarked for, I don't know how to phrase this, destruction, uh, consigned to the dustbin of history, that they're going after farming. And climate change is the big thing here. And we see protests in the Netherlands. We see Irish farmers are starting to stir a bit. Maybe this is a good thing. I don't know. We'll have to watch it. But yes, they are um, encouraging farmers to reduce herds, reduce livestock, farm less. Rewilding is a big thing. Don't farm. Get off the land. And in the meantime, we'll have wonderfully exotic diets to look forward to in the future including insect diets and stuff like that. It all sounds like the the ravings of a madman on the radio. But it isn't the raving of a madman on the radio. This is, um, we read stories all the time in the Telegraph, the Mail Online. We even read them in The Guardian about how we'll all have to change our diets in the near future radically in order to save planet Earth. Now, very importantly... And we might get Maggie Oliver back on this programme this week. We might do. We'll see if time permits it. That's on time on, on her behalf and on th- this programme too. But you know Maggie Oliver has been a regular guest on this programme over the years. Uh, she's a former Greater Manchester Police detective. She's a marvellous woman. Um, a report was published today. Very important. Independent Assurance Review of the effectiveness of multi-agency responses to child sexual exploitation in Greater Manchester. It effectively found that child sexual exploitation in Greater Manchester ran rampant for a couple of decades and it is still a very serious problem in Greater Manchester today. Girls were left at the mercy of paedophile grooming gangs for years because of failings by senior police and council uh, bosses, according to this report, which covers the period 2004 to 2013. It details a series of failed investigations by Greater Manchester Police. It's terrible. It's awful. It vindicates people like Maggie Oliver. It vindicates other 
uh, people, social workers and health workers who did everything they could to raise the alarm on what was going on. It vindicates them 100%, not that they needed it. It's a very important report. Like I said, we should get into it on the programme this coming week, Okay, Uh, The review focused on 111 cases in Rochdale from 2004 to 2013. It concluded, just quickly, the bullet points, compelling evidence of widespread organised sexual exploitation of children. Statutory agencies failed to respond appropriately. The threat of such abuse was not addressed between 2004 and 2007. And the probability that at least 74 children were being sexually exploited. And in 48 of those cases, there were serious failures to protect the child. Child sex exploitation um, was was a low priority, under-resourced by Greater Manchester uh, Police. And it found that the whistleblower, uh, Maggie Oliver, the claims made by Maggie, uh, were substantiated. Very serious. All of the British broadcast media... The usual suspects, the the, the print media is covering that today. Maggie Oliver has been doing uh, the rounds of the mainstream media today and says that this has not gone away by a long shot. Like I said, we might uh, get into that in this coming week on your Richie Allen show. Uh, The most exhaustive poll in five years, looking at voting intentions right now, ahead of this year's general election, The poll was carried out by YouGov, right, the biggest poll in five years. And it said, uh, did this um, poll, that, or it found, I should say, that the Conservative Party will be wiped out, maybe worse than 1997, when Tony Blair led a rout of the Tories. It'll be a rout. Uh, Starmer, Keir Starmer, will be collecting the keys for number 10, barring the greatest... I'm going to say it, fuck up in history. It's going to be uh, Keir Starmer's gig. Uh, Conservative Party MPs could be heard in the corridors of Westminster singing, singing this, uh, singing it loud. Yeah, we're fucked. Asher, we're fucked. We're absolutely fucked now. Totally fucked. Absolutely fucked. We're just fucked. And we know we're fucked. We're- They're gone, right? It doesn't matter, of course. It makes no difference one way or the other. Hey, listen, this made me laugh, and I have a warped sense of humour. I laugh at things nobody else laughs at. Uh, the Conservative Party MP Damien Green was on LBC Radio today. You're prepared for a laugh, you are. <laughs> uh, Damien Green was asked by Nick Ferrari, Damien, why do you think you are polling so badly? Well, because we've had... Um, a Wait for it. Uh, yeah, period of, of extreme uh, economic difficulty uh, following the you know, pandemic, the war, uh, and so on in, in Ukraine. Okay. And we have just started to turn it round. And just started to turn it round, and? And people haven't noticed yet. <laughs> We've just started to turn it around, and people just haven't noticed that Damien Green... Nick Ferrari didn't find it funny, presumably because Nick Ferrari is a Tory. But but on this poll, it, it's always possible to get overexcited about individual <laughs> polls. All polls uh, are just snapshots of today. We've turned it around, Nick. But you know what it is? People haven't noticed yet. That's right. We're doing great, in fact. But people haven't just, they haven't paid any attention. Uh, Gary Lineker is under fire. 
for reach uh, that's Gary Lineker, BBC Sports presenter, former footballer for Leicester City. I had an email today. I mentioned this story on the Papers podcast this morning and I mentioned Gary and didn't mention Leicester City. So I had an email from an irate Leicester fan called Kenny. Hello, Kenny. He said, you mentioned Barcelona and Tottenham Hotspur and you mentioned Everton and England and you never mentioned Leicester, which is where he started. That's right, he did start at Leicester, Kenny. He played up front with Alan Smith, who works for Sky. So I apologise. Yes, Leicester, Everton... Barcelona, Tottenham. He even played for Grampus 8 in in Japan, as well as playing for England. Now, a lot of people don't like Gary Lineker. They say people like Gary Lineker should be heard only on television and only speaking about that which he is an expert, of that which he has some expertise. I don't, I don't even know if he is an expert on football. Just because you played it for years doesn't make you an expert, you know. But anyway, he likes to use his Twitter account to offer opinions on various things. Okay. Often, he looks like a bit of an idiot, but, and you've heard me say this before, he should be allowed, permitted like every other human being on the planet, to tweet out that which he chooses. And if we don't like it, we can either mute him so we don't see him again, or we can try and debate him. And if you're, I mean, he won't debate me, obviously, but if you're a politician or a journalist, he probably would debate you if you invited him to debate you, I don't know, at a university campus somewhere. So he's retweeted the BDS account, right? Boycott, divestment, sanction. It's a Palestinian initiative, which it asks people around the world not to engage with Israel financially, to try and punish Israel for its crimes against humanity in Gaza, not just now, but forever, right? Whether you agree with it or not, it's up to you, but that's what it does. It says, don't buy products made by Israel in the occupied territories. Sanction the country, punish it, and bring it back to international order. So the BDS account tweeted that Israel should be kicked out of world football. And Gary Lineker retweeted that. Go on, Gary. Now, as I said, I've backed his right to tweet whatever he chooses, even when... I think he's being a bit of an Egypt. Uh, he's supporting the Palestinians. Massive ruckus, of course, ban him. BBC should fire him. And this made me laugh. The former BBC presenter John Mayer was chatting with Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk TV today. What should be done with Gary Lineker, John Mayer? I chop off his Twitter fingers. What? <laughs> I chop off his Twitter fingers. Chop off his Twitter fingers. Your Twitter finger is right next to your thumb. And it's between your thumb and your wedding finger. Really, because, I mean, he he really is getting a bit beyond the pale now. So just chop off his fingers. Chop off his fingers. And say, look, Gary, I'm going to put some plaster around those fingers and you can't tweet. (laughs) Obviously, he's joking. I don't think he's calling for the BBC to chop off Gary Lineker's Twitter fingers. Where is your Twitter finger? As I said, mine is between my pinky, my wedding finger, my wedding ring finger, and my index finger. So basically, my Twitter finger is my middle finger. Oh, Jesus. If you don't like what somebody says, ignore him or her or engage them. Or just don't. Ireland, it's quarter past the hour of four o'clock, by the way. This is the Richie Allen Show. There's none like it. Broadcasting live from Salford. I'm Richie Allen, the BBG. Coming up shortly, Molly Kingsley, who founded Us For Them. Very important organisation advocating for children's rights. They've uh, published a book 
Um, Molly was kind enough to send it to me. We're going to chat about it when she joins me in around about 15 minutes' time. What's happening thereafter? No idea. We're, um, we're, we're, we're flying by wire today. It's one of those mad days. Anyway, Ireland is mad. The, we often dip into Morning Ireland, which is a talk show on Irish radio, RTE1, Radio 1, and it is a bit of a flagship show. Ireland is mad. What's going on with the police in Ireland, or 5 as they call them in the hood. What's happening with the guard, is she a corner? It is 25 minutes past eight. The age limit for those... It's not. It's quarter past four, right? But anyway, this is recorded earlier. Those applying to join... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Listen, 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 listen. Five minutes past eight. Wait till you hear this. The age limit for those applying to join the Gardaí is being raised to 50. What? <laughs> You're raising the age limit to 50? So 50-year-olds can apply to join the Garda Shikol... From today, a new recruitment campaign aimed at encouraging people from all backgrounds and communities to join the force gets underway and the government has agreed to raise the recruitment age to 50 from 35. From 35? I mean, that's massive, isn't it? So the previous cut-off point was 35. You couldn't join on Gorda Siakona if you were older than 35. But they're going to raise it to 50. Recruitment issues are plaguing the Gardaí. Let's hear more. We are joined by Superintendent Liam Geraghty from the Garda Press Office. Liam Geraghty. Superintendent Geraghty, thanks for taking our call. Now, every Irish policeman or woman who does the media... Uh, before they do any media, they have a personality bypass. It's it's one of those things. It's an operation. So if you're a Garda Shiokona person and you wear a uniform and you ascend, you ascend through the ranks and eventually you get to talk on the telly. Just before you talk on the telly or the radio, they give you a personality bypass. You know, you might have been the most outgoing, gregarious person that ever lived, but they can't have that. So you get a bypass and then you sound like Liam Geraghty. Do you really want 50-year-olds joining the force? 50-year-olds. Uh, good morning, Audrey, and thanks for the opportunity to speak to your listeners this morning. They all sound the same. As you said, yes, we have opened up um, a fresh recruitment campaign to build on the successes of our 2023 recruitment and 2022 recruitment campaign. You'll be chased by the guard at the driving mobility scooters. <laughs> it's fantastic. There, there are thousands of disused mobility scooters in Ireland. And they figured out exactly how we can put them to good use. Do you know what? Let's raise the age with which you can join the Gardaí to 50 from 35. And then we'll use all those mobility scooters. I've seen people 50 and younger using mobility scooters in Salford. Lazy scallies. Don't start now. I've seen it in, in the precinct, on the precinct. I've seen it. I've seen young men in mobility scooters. Lazy bastards. So they've, they've, re- they've requisitioned mobility scooters for 50-year-old Gardaí for the future. Anyway, this is mad. Listen to this. Um, just a few quick things. First of all, in our recruitment campaign, we have increased our trainee allowance to €305 Euros per week during the course of training. So that will make it much more appealing to people. What? Over, just over €1,200 Euro a month while you're training. How could you live on that? People who want to join us. But yes, the age of our candidates has been increased to 50 years. That follows a number of years where we've had some criticism for having a lower age limit um, and it is a government uh, decision now to increase it to 50 years of age. And yes, there are certainly people, you know, from 35 to 50 who have an awful lot to offer the country, have an, <laughs> an awful lot to offer public service and have an awful lot to offer on Garda Síochána. Well, what so roles no would they gone. be suited for? Because I would have thought being a Garda and the physical demands of that job is a younger person's job. Hang on a second, I'm 49. Jesus, I nearly said 48. I turned 49 on New Year's Eve. And I'm not bragging, but I'm going to brag. 
I'm going to brag. Um, this morning, now bear in mind, I have ditched the alcohol in 2024 thus far. This morning, I ran six miles in just under 47 minutes. In just under 47 minutes. Six miles, not kilometres. So I probably, if I was living back in the old country, I might pass the fitness test. Because that's a good time for a big baldy gammon like me, right? Yeah, just under 47 minutes for six miles. What was it, 46, 26 or something like that? Yeah, proud of that. In icy conditions too. Anyway, what sort of roles will they do? Yes, um, we're very, very clear. that I mean, remember, Garrishy Connor is very much a challenging career. Uh, um, anybody who is joining or making an application must be very, very clear that they will go and do the same training as everybody else that applies and they will go out and start off their duties on the front line of Angarishi Corner. Put a siren on those mobility scooters there. I told you he had a personality bypass, didn't I? Uh, 20 minutes past the hour of four o'clock. It's the Richie Allen Show live from Salford with me, Richie Allen. You may drop me a message during the live show using the app or go to richieallen.co.uk where it says comment live. You can leave a message there. A very good evening to, or a good afternoon to Monk, who's in Canada, Alberta, Canada, uh, where it's minus 42 degrees here. Ah, you scared me there, Monk. That's your crazy North American way of looking at, yeah, minus 42 Celsius, which I believe would be, I can't do the mathematics. What would minus 42 Celsius be in... Oh, Christ, that's cold, isn't it? I'm not even going to try to do, to do <laughs> the mathematics, but it's cold there. Hi to Scottish John. Hi to Chris the Gardener, who says, um, the shutting down of farms and farmers is madness, but orchestrated, in my opinion, says Chris, they would like us to eat bugs and lab-grown meat, probably planning on moving us onto Soylent Green for the next phase of the plan. We are putting our names down for an allotment in the village and hopefully we can grow most of what we need and at some point get some chickens. Taking responsibility for our own needs is the way forward, says Chris. Thank you uh, for that. Chris, thank you for your messages. Lots of them coming in on the app. I'll read them in a moment before we welcome Molly to the show. Okay. If you're... Uh, you won't, though, will you? I mean, if you listen to this programme and you're over 35 but under 50, the fact that you listen to this programme, you're probably unlikely. You're probably unlikely to apply to join the Garda Corner in Ireland. But anyway, let me know if I'm wrong, if you are thinking of, uh, of joining in or joining the force. Let's talk about Yemen for a moment. Um, let me give you the bullet points as reported by the BBC. This afternoon, a United States-owned ship has been hit in response to strikes inside Yemen by the US and the UK on Houthis. So a maritime security firm is saying a US-owned ship has been hit. The master of the vessel reported being hit by a missile near Yemen's port city of Aden. Okay, so the BBC says the Iranian-backed Houthis have been attacking cargo ships since November. They, the Houthis, say these are Israeli-linked, although many have no connections with Israel. So the maritime security firm Ambre says the vessel which was hit was not Israel 
affiliated today. Uh, speaking to MPs in the House of Commons, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said the UK will continue or will not hesitate to take further action against the Houthis to protect shipping in the Red Sea. Here's an interesting soundbite. Grant Shapps, the UK Defence Secretary, gave a wide-ranging speech today about security. Here's a little bit of it. Have a listen. And we've come full circle, moving from a post-war to pre-war. Listen to that. Moving from a post-war to a pre-war world. Who is he threatening there? The enemies of the United Kingdom or the people? From a post-war to pre-war world. An age of idealism has been replaced by a period of hard-headed realism. Today our adversaries are busy rebuilding their barriers. Old enemies are reanimated. New foes are taking shape. Battle lines are being redrawn. The tanks are literally on Europe's Ukrainian lawn. And the foundation of the world order is being shaken to their core. Yeah, sabre-rattling there by Grant Shapps, the UK's current Defence Secretary. I want to get into that with Reagan administration official Paul Craig Roberts tomorrow on the programme and just what he means by that and what it means for you and me. And every time I hear a warmongering madman like Shapps, talk about enemies and new foes. I think that the great majority of people on planet Earth, no matter what country you live in, whether it's Iran, whether it's Syria, whether it's South Sudan, whether it's Zimbabwe, Ireland, whether you're living in Alaska, 99.9999999999% of people on planet Earth just want to be able to live. That's all. To be able to live in some sort of peace, to be able to put some food on the table for family, to be able to pay for your house, to be able to go on a holiday a couple of times a year. We have more in common with the people of Mongolia, with the people of Iran. We have more in common with the people of Russia than we do with those elected to run countries like the UK. And I want to get into that this week. When will it dawn on people? Who is he talking about when he says our enemies? Because I tell you something, dearest listener, I don't have any enemies. I certainly don't have enemies in Russia. I don't have enemies in China. I have no enemies in Iran. I don't have enemies in Israel. Despite the issues I have with the Israeli government. The Israeli people are not my enemy. Who? Neither are the Gazans. Neither are the Palestinians. Who is he talking about? I want to get into that on the programme this week. Thank you for your comments. Hi to Chris, who says the 50-year-olds might be fitter than the 30-year-olds. That's a possibility, that... When you factor in social media, lounging around on your backside all day, playing with your smartphone, maybe. No doubt about that. A black person has tweeted to me, I am black. Not tweeted to me, has sent me a message through the, through the app. Um, describing themselves as a black person who says, I am black. Thank you very much, I appreciate that. Uh, hi to Ian, who says Gary Lineker is Jewish as well. I don't think he is, is he? Uh, Davy says, Richie, if we had the, po- the, the proportional representation vote... Oh, Richie. Davy says, if we had the proportional representation voting system, we would get a large number of independents elected and some of the smaller parties like David Curtin. That's from Davy. Uh, proportional representation, if you don't know what it is, it is the single transferable vote. I've described it many times on this programme. You go into a voting booth right now, 
in the UK uh, this election cycle. So whenever the election is, whether it's in May or September or November, when you go in, you will be given a list of candidates and you will tick the box of the person you would like to uh, be the MP. It's as simple as that. First past the post. In proportional representation, you would be given a number of candidates, but you would get to order them according to your own preference. So you might fancy Mary Murphy. So you would put the number one next to Mary Murphy. And then Jimmy Barnes. You like Jimmy Barnes because he looked after your mother that time when her ankle was sore and she couldn't get to the shops. Jimmy used to drive her. So Jimmy's standing. So now you give Jimmy a number two. And then there is a quota. A number of votes that you need to get elected. So each district might have five MPs, right? So if you get... Uh, look, I've explained this too many times. I could be here all day explaining it. It's pretty simple, really. It's uh, 27 and one half minutes past the hour. I think it's time for a tune. It is Monday's Richie Allen Show. Molly Kingsley joins me right soon. She'll be with me in a few minutes. Before that, it's Wang Chung, who had a hit one time with everybody Wang Chung tonight. It's uh, featured in a film called The Sure Thing, which starred none other than Nicolette Sheridan, and John Cusack and Daphne Zuniga too, I think, back in three. Take your baby by the hands In a dance hall days Right, some music from Wang Chung, Dance Hall Days, uh, 1986, on the Richie Allen Show Monday's programme. It is exactly 29 minutes to the top of the hour. Uh, thanks for the messages. They are pouring in in their dozens about Grand Shafts. We'll get to those a little bit later on. I'm, I'm genuinely excited uh, to meet my guest this hour because I think she's a bit of a heroine, really. I really do. I first came across her um, a couple of years ago on Talk TV. She was speaking with Julia Hartley Brewer about Us For Them, which she co-founded, which she's really the face and the voice of Us For Them, a, a group which was founded to advocate for the rights of children. This came about during the COVID lockdown as well. God, she's taken some stick over the years. Um, stalked by the UK government. That's not unkind to say that. Uh, considered an extremist by uh, the UK government. PayPal uh, debanked her and the organisation. Uh, so much more besides. Um, she's a lot to say. The organisation Us For Them published a book just before Christmas, which I recommend highly. It is entitled The Accountability Deficit, How Ministers and Officials Evaded Accountability, Misled the Public and Violated Democracy During the Pandemic. Let's welcome to the programme Molly Kingsley. Hello, Molly. You're very welcome. How are you? Hello. I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. No, it's a pleasure to have you on. I was thinking about you last week. Um, I should have invited you on before. I don't know why I didn't, but I was thinking of you last week when Baroness Hallett announced. And I'd love to get your thoughts in general, because every time I see a sound, sorry, hear a sound bite or see a clip from the COVID inquiry, you're one of the first people who pop into my mind thinking she must be tearing her hair out by its roots listening to this nonsense. We'll come to that in a minute. But when they announced that they were going to shelve plans to talk about or discuss the the development of and the rollout of the COVID jabs, you were not happy and um, you, you made your feelings perfectly clear on social media and elsewhere, but you were hardly surprised, Molly, were you? No, I mean, it's all sadly 
familiar at this point. And I think, no, you know, you're totally right, Richard. I wasn't happy. I think equally the idea that the vaccine module of the inquiry was ever going to be anything other than a white whitewash at this point, sadly, seems unlikely. But I just think, you know, whether or not you think vaccines have a role to play in the excess deaths crisis we're now seeing, an excess death crisis, which we know, we know is fueled predominantly by cardiac uh, events and by clotting events. And of course, we know there are signals of each of those events with the vaccine. But whether you think the vaccine is responsible or not, it seems just incredible to me that as a country we would not be rushing to investigate these deaths in younger age cohorts it's just incredibly sad to think that is the place we are now living in molly it's just speculation obviously but i mean that's what we do on 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 radio speculate if you had to venture a guess as to why it is that you know, they could ride roughshod over, over Andrew Bridgen and others and just ignore the obvious, that there is something going on. I mean, I know that, I'm no doctor, I'm no virologist, but I know something is going on. Why do you think it is they are so reticent to say, right, something is going on, let's open an inquiry into the vaccines. And You probably want to kill me for saying this now because we're sick of inquiries, we're up to our necks in inquiries, but why don't we just look specifically at the vaccine? Why do you think they're so reluctant to do that? Well, they've messed up, haven't they? And look, I mean, I don't know. I'm not behind these excess deaths. Like many people at this stage, I do know more than a handful of people or, you know, more than a handful of people who believe they have been harmed some seriously by the vaccine and the timing seems too coincidental to be a coincidental uh, you know, coincidental occurrence. And I'm sure at this point, many of us will know people in that position or maybe have been affected ourselves. So I think we're at that point, you know, what is it the Orwell saying is, you know, and then they ask you to disbelieve the evidence of your eyes and ears. I think we're at the point where many of us will have concerns purely based on what we have seen of our friends and our family. And actually, it, it seems incredible to me that that the authorities won't investigate that as to why they won't because the vaccine rollout like so much of the pandemic response was rushed it was not always evidence-based and it seems that it was made without regard to ethical and moral safeguards so someone here is at serious fault and there are many people who will have an interest in covering that up and actually there's a whole chapter in um, the book which you kindly mentioned that me and a couple of colleagues wrote there's a whole chapter in the book about um, the thing I've just talked about about you know what looks like the deliberate circumnavigation of ethical safeguards especially in regards to the vaccine rollout and I think you get to a point where none of this really looks accidental. You know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly with school closures, we 
naively thought that these were just bad policy decisions, you know, policy decisions that hadn't considered in particular children's welfare that had been made in a terrible rush in the in the height of, a, you know, a, what was considered at the time to be a genuine emergency. I do believe that. But I think as you go on through the months, the behaviour gets worse and worse. And actually, when you are talking about things like the government's own ethics committee being, it appears, deliberately shut down. Well, that's not an accident, is it? That's a very deliberate decision to circum circumnavigate safeguards. And that is wrong. And that is why I assume there is so much resistance to investigating it. It can't be easy for, for you or anybody, like a professional woman like yourself. I know you have a background. You have a background in psychotherapy, don't you? Am I right in saying that? No, I'm a, I was a lawyer. Lawyer, actually, what's wrong with me, Molly? My apologies. Originally. My apolo- Of course, yes, your background no, is legal. Yeah, yeah. So that can't be easy for you to a suspect that it wasn't bad decision making. That in fact the decisions were being made deliberately, because immediately you leave yourself wide open, and it's been done to you. I've seen it in the press. You leave yourself wide open to being labelled as some sort of kooky, nutty conspiracy theorist. That's not easy to deal with. So it's kind of courageous that you would say, well, listen, let's stop giving them the get out of jail free card, which we've done for decades, and say that, oh, well, they just screwed up, they're stupid. Maybe they're not stupid. Maybe there's something else going on. It's not easy to come to that conclusion, is it? Uh, and, And let alone talk about it, Molly. No, I mean, in a way, I've got nothing to lose. So I, you know, I stopped being a professional lawyer about well, over 10 years ago now. So I'm, you know, I'm, I haven't got a job in that sense to lose. I am, I, during the height of the pandemic, I was writing regularly. I had a column for the Telegraph. I was cancelled, no explanation. And that was absolutely devastating. I, you know, I just couldn't believe it. And you feel, you feel like, in fact, I was cancelled after writing, after being commissioned <laughs> to write about the vaccine rollout to children. Um, and that was crushing because, I felt very exposed. It was a subject that I was very reticent, probably far, far too reticent, actually, to broach with us for them. Opinion within the us for them team was very divided. We were all very aware about what would happen if we tackled that subject. And I regret to say I was not brave then. Um, and then, of course, you write about it, you're cancelled, you're treated like a pariah. And yeah, that that was gutting, but that was two years ago now. And I think since then, you think, well, you know, I've got this legal background for a long time. I kind of had written off my legal career as not quite fitting into my life story. But suddenly it all makes sense because I do have enough of a legal background to understand when something is the wrong side of wrong. And this is. And, you know, I don't agree, by the way, that this is all a mass depopulation agenda. I know some people, you know, would say that I personally don't buy into it. I certainly don't think the case for that has been proved. But equally, I don't think these things were accidental. And I think you have lots of different degrees of moral, but also legal culpability before you get to a, you know, mass global criminal (laughs) agenda. You have gross recklessness, you have manslaughter, you you know, there are there are laws that are meant to deal with this situation. And one thing I would say at this point is I personally think those in positions of responsibility, those who executed executed these very contentious policies are crazy to not be pushing for the COVID inquiry to be looking into them because the COVID inquiry would not um, have criminal 
prosecutions as its result. You know, in, in that sense, senior decision makers would be safe. It might be embarrassing, but you wouldn't expect it to be worse than that. And I think that what will happen is by suppressing the, the rightful cause for an investigation, we will find that people get very, very angry. And suddenly, it, you know, the calls may not be for an inquiry. They may be for criminal prosecutions. So if I was a decision maker, I would I would be pr pushing for transparency and an investigation and let's get to the bottom of this and let's do it quickly because that is so clearly the right thing to do in this situation. You're listening to Molly Kingsley, Us For Them um, founder and we, um, we'll talk a little bit about a brand new book, right? It's The Accountability Deficit, How Ministers and Officials Evaded Accountability, Misled the Public and Violated Democracy During uh, the Pandemic. Molly, in researching the book, and of course, um, I, I, I should have mentioned earlier, of course, uh, the book was co-written with your colleagues Arabella Skinner and Ben Kingsley. When you were looking into the last three years, what kind of things stood out? And I do urge people to get online and buy this book because this sort of independent writing is, um, it, well, it's in jeopardy now. It's in peril. I mean, you heard Molly talk there about being commissioned to do uh, pieces for The Telegraph on why maybe it's not a great idea to give the kids the COVID jabs and then she was kicked out. And there are those who listen to this programme and they would say, oh, The Telegraph is on the right side of history. No, it isn't. None of them, none of the broadsheet media are on the right side of history when it comes to COVID. Neither are most, um, I would say, all of the broadcasters. Molly might disagree with me. But when you were looking through the ongoings, the happenings of the last three years, are there things that stood out, Molly, that shocked you to your core? Yeah, I mean, the whole lot. <laughs> if I'm Every honest. bit of it. <laughs> but I, I think in particular, I mean, I think it erred for me um, from on the kind of lower level, which is the wrong way of putting it because they, these were still disastrous decisions. But, you know, there was anything from just grossly um, stupid and unbalanced decisions. And I think school closures is a good example of that. I don't think there was any malice in school closures. I think it was just a disastrous policy decision that was made without reference to children and probably without proper input from the key decision maker. I mean, we know that from Gavin Williamson's testimony that he feels he was cut out of that decision. Um, and I think what what I certainly felt is that as the pandemic continued, we went from, you know, merely bad in inverted commas decisions like school closures to decisions which really, really stank for want of a better word. And, you know, certainly by the time we get to the vaccination program and we get to coercive vaccination of a product that had no, no safety record, you know, whether that was for adults or children, I just, I just find that utterly incredible that we would think that was an acceptable policy choice. And, you know, for me, like many parents, the height of shock really was when that program was attempted to be pushed onto children um, in absolute breach of principles of informed consent. You know, there just there wasn't informed consent. And of course, there wasn't informed consent because of the point you just made that with very few exceptions, the mainstream media have been silent or scared to lay out concerns, even if they're not, you know, 
all backed up by evidence, there's certainly a lot of concern about these interventions, and that has not been reflected in the mainstream press. So it made informed consent possible. And of course, as soon as you get to situations where you have ministers pushing this product on the population, well, you've you know you've shredded any concept of informed consent anyway. And and I, you know, I am a believer in medical ethics. My background I'm, a, I'm Jewish by background I come from a family who were largely you know ancestors murdered in the Holocaust awful things like that and these principles are important to me and I will fight to the death for them and I, I don't know why I just had this like visceral reaction about some of these responses that this is just so wrong and I don't really care what I lose at this point it's not about that it's just you have to stand up like if you don't believe in this you don't really believe in in civilized society yeah and I felt that very strongly and I feel it now I was hoping for a bit more pushback from Israelis I I, I had a Jewish academic on during lockdown two on the program and um, he was aghast at what was going on in Israel because they came down very heavy, didn't they, the Israeli government, on Israelis. And they, they rolled out the first, correct me if I'm wrong now, Molly, because I might be, I'm often bloody wrong. Um, but, but did the Israelis roll out the first green pass? Um, where people yeah, couldn't go I believe, Yeah, I believe you're right. And I remember at the time being very shaken. Yeah, because you would have well. imagined that Israelis, you know, with, with the Holocaust not being, obviously it's, it's, it's even in our lifetime, even though we were born after it, but our grandparents were alive during it. I thought there's no way Jews in Israel will put up with this. Um, how naive I was, Molly. Molly Kingsley is our guest. He, sorry, you were going to come in there. Come in. No, no, I was just, I, I feel exactly the same. And it, it you know, it's, I, I think there's clearly many, many differences between the situation we've been in and something like the Holocaust. And I don't think anyone of course, would, yeah, yeah. you know, would hold a, a kind of equivalent comparison, but there are shadows of it. And there were with the stigmatization that kind of at times began to feel like it was getting to the persecution level. And of course, the medical ethics, which we shredded on that basis alone, exactly you would have expected the Israelis to stand up, but they didn't like so much of the rest of the world. They, well, they weren't only silent, they were the ringleaders, yeah. or some of the ringleaders. Molly Kingsley has been a brilliant advocate for the rights of children in this country. She really has been consistent for, um, for three years and uh, at a considerable expense, really, to herself, really. Um, but uh, courageous enough. Um, interesting, you said you, you, at times you weren't courageous. I think you were, really. It's not my job to butter you up here or, or to sell you. I'm not doing that. I'm genuinely impressed by what you did during that period of time and, and the crap you had to put up with. You know, I've had a little bit of it over the years as an independent journalist, but, um, I mean, you, you properly got it in the neck. You talked about there being a little bit of dissension in the ranks when it came to the jab amongst your own colleagues at us for them. Um, how serious did that get? Or was it, um, you know, was it just, I don't know, um, grown-up debate between grown-ups? Or did it get pretty serious about, you know, about your stance on the jabs for kids? No, I mean, I think like any of the major kind of policy response you know responses to policy decisions we had we always discussed it as a group and usually we were very aligned and i think the thing that was very hard about the vaccines is pretty much all of us started from a pro vaccine stance which you know in some ways i i do now question because obviously i'm <laughs> quite far down a rabbit hole of research but let's maybe not go there um but i think it was very difficult for all of us actually to believe that a UK government would push 
something that wasn't anything other than totally establishedly safe. Um, so I think it was more at first not wanting to believe that was happening. And I think uh, I think where we all did agree and where we came out, which I think at the time was possibly the right place to come out, was as soon as there was a hint of that being mandatory, you know, particularly for children, that was just a line that none of us would tolerate. I think, you know, it's also hindsight is a is a great thing, isn't it? And I certainly had not done as much research back in 2021 about the vaccine as I have now. I've now read an awful, awful lot. I am, you know, I just for my own kids, you know, over my dead body, would I let them have this product? I've given them many other vaccines. Um, but I, you know, I think like many of us, I hadn't, the research actually wasn't there, was it? And, and of course, we now have a load of emerging safety signals that didn't exist then. And I think maybe we wanted to believe that actually maybe this was safe. Maybe there couldn't be mechanisms. Maybe it was more like a traditional vaccine. But, you know, of course, as time, as the months wore on, that became more and more obvious that wasn't the case. Can I ask you, Molly? Um, it's not loaded, this question at all, but as a mum, like, Seeing what they did, the I mean, Cavalier, again, I think, is giving them a get-out-of-jail card. It wasn't Cavalier, it was criminal. It was criminal to attempt to coerce anybody to take a medicine that wasn't properly tested. I mean, everybody who knew anything knew that these things normally take a decade or more before the regulators are happy to pass them after they've had long-term safety studies done on them. And they're pushing this stuff. And again, most of us kind of knew at the time that while COVID could be a big deal for people with various morbidities or or very old people who might have breathing issues or breathing uh, problems, that for the great majority of people, even Chris Whitty said this early on, it wasn't anything to get too concerned about. So looking at what they did, does it make you, not make you, but does it lead to a kind of a re-examination of, I mean, it has for me, so I'm not going to ask you a loaded question. It has for me, I look at it and now I wonder, you know, when I was a kid, I was given the BCG jab. I may, may have had another jab for measles. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But you now start to wonder, what else have they kind of insisted that we have that maybe they weren't too... Um, sure about over the years. Maybe they didn't have enough safety data. How often has this gone on over the years? I mean, do you wonder about that now? Oh, of course you do. Of course you do. And I think, I mean, this is a huge problem. And I, like, honestly, I don't know now, you know, I wouldn't say I am anti-vax in the traditional way that term is perhaps used. Like, as I've said, I have until until COVID, I've given all my children the, you know, recommended vaccines. And I did so unblinkingly and perhaps unthinkingly. I think luckily my kids are not up for any soon. And I don't know what I will do next time they are. I think the HPV one will be the next one that we have to make that decision. And I think my husband and I, having now read so much about what happened with this one and also understanding so much about the regulatory context in which pharma is allowed to operate and there's you know there's a whole chapter on the book in this and my husband who's one of one of the co-authors you mentioned his background is as a senior he's a senior financial crime and regulatory lawyer which obviously came in quite helpful and and when we started diving into the regulatory environment around pharma i mean he was just that's why he got involved he was just really shocked by these huge gaps in the regulatory environment and 
you know there there is no jail i won't bore you with the, with the kind of legal well, details boring, in no. short that there is no duty on the pharmaceutical companies to act in the best interests of the public and for an industry that has so much power undoubtedly to do good but also to do so much harm that's just incredible and of course we now know i mean we've spent months we spent the summer pouring over mhra minutes and and i would be concerned about giving another vaccine to my kids it doesn't mean i won't but i will certainly read yeah, very very carefully look. and I, I you know i think it is i also accept against that i accept that there are immunizations that traditionally have been thought of as absolutely essential um and i think if government want to restore trust in those programs, they are going to need to be honest about the mistakes that were made during the COVID vaccine rollout. Molly, I have a couple of quick questions before I let you get back to um, regular life because you're up to your eyes there at home, <laughs> as well as the work you do with us for them. So I appreciate your time uh, this afternoon. A couple of quick ones. I interviewed an author on the programme last week called Ben Irvine. Ben came on. Um, I liked him. I liked speaking with him. He's an interesting guy. He can be a bit abrasive on Twitter. No harm in that, I suppose, but he can be a bit abrasive <laughs> with his critics. But Ben reckons that the unions played a massive part in pressurising the British government back in 2020. Ben, It's Ben's belief that the Prime Minister of the day, Boris Johnson, um, was as reluctant as anybody could be uh, to lock down, but that ultimately, he's written books about this, but ultimately the, the unions were huge here, particularly the education unions, in, um, you know, seeing it as, because they traditionally hate the Conservatives and they're a Labour-supporting uh, union, they saw it as a chance to undermine uh, the government, you know, and to put it out there that the government was playing fast and loose with the health of the nation. Do you think there's, th does Ben have a point? Were the unions very important? How important would you um, ascribe them? What, what, what kind of part did they play, do you think, in that kind of whole lockdown, first lockdown decision? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with Ben on that. And I think, you know, where I probably differ from him, him is I think ultimately the decisions were made by government. So, you know, it was open to government to disregard and override the unions. They chose not to. So I, I think kind of hurling, <laughs> um, you know, vitriol at the unions, I personally think is self-defeating, though I understand why there is or was at the time a lot of public anger directed to them. I suppose maybe the one thing I would say is I think there was a difference between certainly the NEU and the head teacher unions. The head teacher unions, I think, were a bit more sensible. Um, but we know the unions played a huge part. I mean, that is a matter of matter of public record. Ben has documented that. We documented some of it in our first book, The Children's Inquiry. We had a chapter on that. Certainly in the masking of children as well, we know it was because the teachers essentially refused to go back to work unless the kids were masked, that that yeah. decision was implemented. So Ben, you know, Ben is right on that. And final question, and you can take two or three minutes to answer this if you want, and thanks for coming on. By the way, folks, Molly's book, uh, co-written with Arabella Skinner and Ben Kingsley, that's um, Molly's husband, of course, it's The Accountability Deficit, How Ministers and Officials Evaded Accountability, Misled the Public and Violated Democracy During the Pandemic. Do pick up a copy of it. You've got to support real independent media. And us for them, you'll find them online, you'll find them on Twitter. And when the live show is over, the podcast notes later will continue links to uh, the book and to the website and all the rest of it so finally and this is why I said two or three minutes because you might need two or three minutes if you could sum up what lockdowns 
uh, being kept home from school and away from your friends, being told you might kill granny if you give her a hug, wearing masks. What impact has that had? How would you describe what that has done to that generation, school-going generation of children? What has it done to them, Molly? And is it irreparable or can it be brought back? Um... I mean, I think it's a hard question to answer because I think no child is in the same position. And I think, you know, many children will be fine. We're probably fine at the time, but we know, of course, that many thousands were not fine. And, you know, I mean, there's the obvious impacts in terms of learning loss, um, in terms of the lack of socialization, I think particularly on the transition years. So, you know, actually more for the course of writing the first book rather than the accountability deficit, but for the children's inquiry, Liz Cole, who was one of my co-founders, um, you know, we spent we spent months researching, talking to parents in the network. And, and the common themes we heard was that children who were moving up from either, you know, nursery to primary school or from primary to secondary, and actually the older kids moving into the first university years fared really, really badly. I think there was a real lack of focus on university students. In some ways, actually, they were treated more abysmally than school school children who at least were at home. You know, can you imagine being an 18 year old and at university for the first time yeah. um, and being locked in your halls, not allowed to see anyone? It must have been absolutely brutal and isolating and lonely. Um, I think speech and language is a massive, massive thing. We have incredibly 5 million children not meeting speech and language milestones. The legacy of that across a lifetime is huge. And also, you know, being sort of thinking about it in a slightly more quantitative way, the burden that puts on the state because they are the adults who are likely to have social issues, are likely to end up or more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. All of these things put a higher burden on the state. Obviously, you have the health impacts of locking people away and not letting them use, use, use playgrounds. But I think for me, the biggest cost is simply the diversion of an almost unquantifiable amount of public money from other things. So, you know, we will be poorer as a generation across our lifetimes and probably across our children's lifetimes. And there will be less money to invest in education, in schools. And I think, you know, it's less, less, you know, just children. But my final thought is sort of more for all of us. It seems to me that we have done something very bad to the fabric of our democracy. I think there are many of us who will come out of this period, you know, whereas in 2019, we probably thought we were living in a stable, safe, democratic country, albeit one with faults. I think there are many of us who will question whether actually this country has any right, given what has happened to call itself a democracy in the sense that we would have understood that word. And I think you will have a, a class of really disillusioned voters. You know, the children, those, those kids who were 14 or 15 a few years ago will be the voters at the next election, if not this one, the one after. And I suspect we're going to see a lot of social unhappiness as a result of what happened. Molly, it was nice to meet you. Thanks for taking the time to come on and taking the call today. I really appreciate it. The Accountability Deficit is the book, dear listener. Check it out. Pick up a copy of it. Read it. It's vital. Um, final thought for me is the World Economic Forum meets on 
Well, it meets this week, but on Wednesday they're going to talk about how to deal with a future pandemic. Wouldn't it be nice if we could get you in that room, wouldn't it? Also, there might be blood. <laughs> there might be blood on the walls. Molly, it was really lovely to meet you. Thanks for the work you've done and the work it you'll continue great. to do. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You're welcome. Look after yourself. Bye for now. Molly Kingsley, uh, the founder of Us For Them, the co-author of the Accountability Deficit, live on your Richie Allen Show this Monday afternoon. The time is exactly a minute past five. I'm going to take a tune now. When I come back from that, it's going to be more of your messages and then we'll go uh, a different way entirely is what we're going to do. So here's the bloody tune then. <laughs> Had to drag it in. It's a Monday. Fantastic. Lots of messages. Thank you. Yes, yes. We might see things differently regarding depopulation agendas. I know that. I know that. That's all right. We've got to coexist. Here's Mike and the Mechanics then. Richie Allen Show, live from Salford. Multiple platforms. Back and four. Right, so that is uh, music from Mike and the Mechanics, The Living Years, on the Richie Allen Show, six minutes past the hour. I'm Richie Allen. Who else? Uh, your BBG. As usual, it's brilliant to be with you. Please consider supporting the independent media. We need your support. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Yes, just as I was about to come up the stairs to the studio, that's Studio 2 at BBG Towers. There's two studios. There's two studios. Uh, Studio 2 here. Um, I received... A shock and a wonderful surprise, a wonderful present. I received the belated birthday present from my great friend Jean Ann Crowley, who's often mentioned on this programme. A thespian titan, a titan of thespianism, uh, is our Jean Ann, a radio presenter, writer. She sent me the most beautiful thing. I'm so excited about it. I can't wait to read it. Because uh, you know I'm a student of radio. Um, you're not very good as a student. You're not very good at studying it. Fair enough, you bastard. Um, it's very subjective, this business, isn't it? You like what you see and you see what you like. Look, um, uh, so Jean Ann uh, sent me this beautiful book. Gay Byrne is one of the greatest television and radio presenters in the world. Now, he wasn't everybody's cup of tea. I, 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 but one, of the, one of the things I remember, one of the fondest memories I have of Gay Byrne is no matter who you would meet in town, in Waterford, and if the subject of The Late Late Show came up, or his radio show, because The Late Late Show is a world-famous, it is world-famous, a Friday night television show, which has been around for decades and decades and decades. And Gay began presenting it in the 1960s. God forgive me if it was the 1950s. I'm always wrong. But I think it began in the early 1960s. I will be corrected. Anyway, um, one of the wonderful things about him was if you broached the subject of The Late Late Show, in Waterford, when I was a young man, everybody, no matter what their political leanings were, would say he was biased. And I thought that was fantastic. As a kid who wanted to be in radio production, I thought, this is wonderful. Everybody, whether they be Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, the Progressive Democrats, Sinn Féin, the Labour Party, have I left out a party? The Workers' Party. Uh, they all thought he was biased, and I thought, well, he couldn't be then. He's good at his job. And he was an amazing man. Met him one time, but only for two minutes. A very brief two-minute encounter. How are you? How are you? Where, where, Waterford? Yep, yeah, lovely. Yep, yeah, lovely. And he moved on. <laughs> job done. That was my introduction. Anyway, his daughter, Susie, has, um, has done a wonderful thing. She has collated um, letters written by listeners to the great Gay Byrne during the time uh, 
He presented his radio show on RTE, uh, which he began in February 1973 until he retired in 1998. And Susie's gone through all of these letters and has made a book, has produced a book which has been published just before Christmas, Letters to the Gay Burn Show, A Handwritten History of Ireland. And I can't wait to read it. It's like me getting a Bob Seger album or a Bruce Springsteen album. It really is. So I was chuffed. I wasn't going to say anything to Jean Anne until tomorrow. I was going to give her a ring tomorrow to thank her. I know you're wondering, why is he telling us this? <laughs> this is a news show. Well, this is my news. It's my news. I'm very, very excited. It's a very thoughtful, beautiful gift. And I cannot wait to get stuck in because it'll be a window onto, a window onto how people in Ireland thought uh, about things, about issues during this particular period. So thank you, my wonderful friend in Cleggan in Connemara. I cannot wait to get into that. I'll be reading it at the weekend. I'm just halfway through a book at the moment. The missus gave me a book about how the Godfather film was made. It's a wonderful read. It really is about Mario Puzzo and about Robert Evans, Paramount Studios and all these mad men who came together and some mad women too to uh, to make The Godfather. But Jean Anne has given me my next read and I cannot wait to get stuck in. Now I was due to have somebody on the programme from America at this hour, but they've cried off very late, which is no problem. It happens sometimes. Um, we've rescheduled that for later in the week. But uh, I can talk to you in any case, because I have a few things I'd like to get off my chest. And it's about something that's going on in Ireland, but also going on around the world. Let me read you Connor Kane. Connor Kane is the Southeast correspondent for RTE's website. That's the national broadcaster. We've mentioned RTE just now, Gay Byrne. Um, and this is something that's going on in Ross Cray in County Tipperary, Tibret Oran. Right? The great Tipperary. Oh, it's a long way to Tipperary. Yeah, um, the, the, the nemesis of Waterford Hurlers. More, more, more even than Limerick and Cork, uh, Tipperary. More even than Kilkenny, Tipperary, in recent years. Anyway, Conor Kane, 17 asylum seekers have been moved into a hotel in Ross Cray County, Tipperary, which has been the subject of protests in recent days. The Garda Public Order Unit was present outside the Racket Hall Hotel today, this afternoon, while the international protection applicants, understood to be women and children, were being brought into the hotel premises. There were standoffs, according to Conor Kane for RTE, standoffs between protesters and the Garda, as, or the Gardaí, as the operation took place, and a significant number of Gardaí remained present for some time. The correspondent says there was around two, there were uh, around 200 people protesting at one point this afternoon. 40 stuck around, and that's why the guard is stuck around, but the public order unit was stood down. So that's an interesting development then. A guard, a public order unit, arriving on the scene of a hotel, and then asylum seekers being sent. Um, being brought into that hotel with the crowd there to protest, mostly, I suppose, most there to protest, uh, being kept away 
point the guardie. Women and children, they're saying. Now, it's a bit late in the day for me to be doing this, but if you happen to be around uh, Tipperary, if you know about this and you'd like to talk to me about it, you can send me a message via WhatsApp. There is a WhatsApp account uh, for this programme. You do know that, don't you? So uh, get in touch with me or send me a Skype message. But probably it's best on WhatsApp if you're familiar with what's going on here. I've got really mixed... And I'm, I'm not going to do a 180-degree turn here. You, you've you listened to me long enough. I give everybody a fair go. And I have nothing but sympathy for people who live in communities in Ireland where resources are stretched very thin because of cuts to services made by successive governments. On the orders of Brussels. Remember, Ireland is a fiefdom of Brussels. It is not a sovereign state. Neither is the UK. There isn't such a thing as a sovereign nation in the world, in my opinion. That is only my opinion. So Ireland is a fiefdom of Brussels. And Brussels says, you know, the the Irish finance minister... And because it doesn't matter anymore, I used to be that encyclopedia-brained journalist. I'm not bragging, I used to be. If you asked me to name you Denmark's finance minister, at one time I could tell you. Who's the Greek? Well, that was easy back in the day of Arafakis. But I could tell you, whichever government, the British government, I could tell you, right? I don't care anymore. It, it occurred to me when I was out running the other morning. I was struggling to think of the name of the Home Secretary in the UK because the position has been filled by several people in the last two years alone. Now, it's James Cleverly, but the fact was I couldn't get my head round it and I know I don't have early onset dementia, so I was thinking it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the nations we live in are not sovereign. The people in charge are not really in charge. It is meant to look like they are in charge. Don't go over old ground. No, I won't, I won't. I won't. So here's where I have an issue. So the Irish budget then has to be signed off by a an economist who arrives in Ireland to look at it and then give it the, the seal of approval. This is not a lie, by the way. The Irish government doesn't retain the right to spend as it sees fit within um, its own border on whatever government projects it wants to spend on. It must get permission from Brussels. Right, okay. So... Back to communities, problems, um, services breaking down, access to important things are very difficult. Rural communities, we're not talking about cities, because Ross Cray is not a city, it's a town, right? And then you commandeer a building and you say, we're going to put um, people seeking international protection in that building. And people locally, they know that this is a problem for them. They know that this is going to mean that life, which is difficult anyway, might become, probably will, a little bit more difficult. It just will do. They raise concerns about it. The media and pretty much the entire political class says, well, you're nothing but a dirty little racist. So that's a fact. So I completely understand the people who live in small, uh, anywhere really, who say, look, is this really a good thing? It's not a good thing. We'd rather you didn't do it. They're not racist. They're not nimbies. Whatever you want to call them. However, and I've probably not done this enough in the last year or a year and a half, but it must be done. I'd like to know where the women and children going into the Racket Hall Hotel in Ross Cray originated. 
where did they come from, these women? Um, did they come from Ukraine? Um, okay, that's that's one. Park that. Did they come from somewhere else in the Middle East? Did they come from a country? Did they come from Yemen, maybe? Did they come from Gaza? Maybe not, right? We know that nobody from Gaza has managed to get out of Gaza and reach Europe, southern Europe, let alone the Republic of Ireland, right? Okay, have they come from Syria? Where have they come from, these women and children? Let's leave aside the young men, because I know there's a problem with young men, undocumented, some of them, not all of them, arriving in the country. We know this is an issue. It is. It's gaslighting to tell people it isn't. It is an issue. It is a problem. Not all of these men will have sinister attitudes towards women, not all of these men will tend towards criminality. Of course not, but some will. And this is a problem when you don't know anything about the men. We'll leave that. Again, we'll park that for a minute. And I haven't done this enough in the last year. It sounds very pompous. It sounds very pompous, as if what I have to say really matters. It doesn't. But here's where I am. Has everybody forgotten what happened in Iraq in 1991? Has everybody forgotten what happened in Iraq in 2003 and Afghanistan? Has everybody forgotten what's happened in Syria and what's happened in Libya? And is anybody paying attention to what's happening in Yemen in recent years? And again, is anybody paying attention to the various regional wars which have been raging in Africa for decades now? Fueled, of course, by lords of war... Yeah, that Nicolas Cage character in that film, Lords of War, actually exists, working on behalf of intelligence agencies in the West and governments in the West and arming both sides of every conflict in the Third World and Sub-Saharan Africa to cause carnage. Has everybody forgotten about all of that? Has everybody forgotten that a million people at least were murdered in Iraq during the period 2003 to 2009? A million. And two to three million more were displaced. Has everybody forgotten that the intelligence agencies of the West fueled, armed, trained and financed Wahhabist nutter headchoppers to go into, not just to go into Syria, but to go into Nigeria, again to go into Africa and cause carnage and burn everything in their wake? Has everybody forgotten that? Even the Conservatives who listen to this programme, and I give you a fair go, I'm not a Conservative. I'm not anything anymore. I used to think I was a Socialist, an old Bolivarian Socialist, but I don't know what I am. None of it means anything anymore to me. But have you forgotten that lots of people making their way through Southern Europe, many of the one million who ended up in Germany, these are people who were going about their daily lives Fine and dandy, thank you very much. Until all of a sudden, F-16s were flying over their heads and other monstrous flying killing machines made by Raytheon and bringing hellfire, brimstone and death to their neighbourhoods. Have we forgotten that? What is the onus? What are or what is the responsibility of the citizen of... Now, you'll say Ireland had nothing to do with that. Ireland had nothing to do with it, Richie. Ireland had nothing to do with what happened in Afghan 
and Afghanistan. Did you know that Ireland, which claims to be a neutral country, which claims to be a neutral country, did you know that Ireland permitted US bombers to fuel at Shannon Airport, to refuel, knowing those bombers were going to fly over Iraq and Afghanistan and then Libya and then Syria, but primarily Iraq and Afghanistan, and drop Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, British Aerospace Systems bombs on men, women and children in those countries. Did you know that? If you're Irish, did you actually know that this actually happened? Because it actually did. I won't say actually again. So it's one thing. So, so what do you do with that? Where's the answer? So you say, who are these women and children? Why are there Iraqis living in Listowel in County Kerry? Why are there... Um, Afghan, why are there Afghan families living in McCroom in County Cork? Why? Why are they moving them in? Um, where are all these young men coming from? They're undocumented workers. Some conservatives will say who've got no um, interest in, let alone I don't think any ability to be, to be. How do I say this? To 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 look at an issue more broadly instead of looking at it in terms of black and white. Conservatives who will say, oh, they're undocumented workers, working age young men, what are they doing here? What are the prospects, do you think, in the Middle East, in certain countries, that were visited by the, the coalition of the willing? What are the employment prospects, do you think, of young men in that part of the world? Now, I don't know the answer to that. I'm willing to guess the employment prospects are less, are, are, are no... Are, are, are in no way as bright or as prosperous as they are in the UK, even though things are going tits up here. And if we accept that the prospects for life and for quality of life in these countries are pretty shit, what would you do if you were a 21-year-old man with nothing going for you, yet you knew there was a guy in Rotherham, or in Rochdale, or in Essex, right, or in Southampton, a guy who moved to the UK back in the 1990s, and he's an Iraqi, and he's looking for an employee. You'd make your way to Essex or to Southampton, or you might make your way to Ross Cray in Tipperary. You get the point? I've laboured it, and it's ham-fisted. It's an obvious thing to say. But Conservatives don't want to talk about that. And I kind of understand it. It's like, well, it's not our problem. Well, it is our problem. It is, because we didn't do anything about it. We did, Richie. A million people marched in London ahead of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. They did, but they went home. And the planes took off anyway. And the aircraft carriers sailed into the Gulf anyway and pounded Iraq and Afghanistan back to the Stone Age and killed millions of people and poisoned them. Remember the great Robert Fisk, no longer with us, the great writer for the Independent. Remember what they did with their depleted uranium munitions in Fallujah, leading to babies being born with two heads and five legs and missing eyes and missing ears and all the rest of that. So this is the legacy of it. Some say the Kalurgi plan. I don't know about any Kalurgi plan, giving it names. Um, is it a deliberate plan to displace millions of people? Yes, I would say yes. You know, I don't buy the... It's a, it, it, it's a byproduct of stupidity. No, I don't buy that. I don't believe for a minute that this is unintended consequences. Well, we went into Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan and bombed the fucking shit out of the place. We never thought that Europe would be... Would be um, I don't want to say swamped. And I don't self-censor. 
not worried about what people think about me. Uh, so I won't. I'll say swamped. So we never thought that uh, Europe would be swamped and uh, Britain would be swamped by mine. We never saw that coming at all. Of course they saw it coming. So the point is, ultimately, when you boil it all down, what about these people? These people that we don't want in our neighbourhoods because things are difficult enough as it is. And I mean that. I'm not being mealy-mouthed about that. I mean it. I would have a problem. If I lived in a rural... If I lived anywhere in Ireland where things are stretched very, 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 very thin and they bust in a, a busload of lads, I'm going to have a problem with it. Of course I am. No hypocrite am I. What the fuck is going on? What are you bringing these in for? But whatever they might be, whatever their religion is, whatever their attitudes towards women might be, we don't know. Because they're not all going to be the same. The fact is, they are arriving from a country which has been raped, pillaged, plundered, interfered with, set on fire by, ruined by Western democracies. So what responsibility do we have for these people? And I've often said this, I'm going to end this mini rant with my next comment. I have gotten into taxis driven by every denomination, every race, colour and creed. But in the UK, it's mostly people from an Asian background, mostly Pakistanis. And Pakistanis are getting bashed in the media again today because of the report on the grooming in Rochdale, okay? Yes, there is a problem with some young Asian men. Um, the the ultra-conservative, I don't want to say far-right because far-right is bullshit, right? But the, the, the xenophobic conservatives, and there are some, let's be honest about it, there are. I don't believe racism is a big deal in the UK. Maybe I'm a white privileged man, maybe that's my subconscious bias emerging, uh, coming out to play, I don't know. But I don't think race is an issue. And I've interviewed and spoken to black people who don't think it's an issue. Jewish people who don't think it's an issue. So I don't think race is an issue. There is a small um, minority of Pakistani men who see um, white British girls as somehow less than a whole human being and somehow fallen and they think they're fair game. And these gangs ran riot and might be still running riot in some parts of the UK because of a reluctancy on the part of the British police and the British establishment to do anything about it. But the great um, majority of Pakistani Muslims in this country are good people. And I know this to be true because I've lived amongst British Pakistanis and I've only met the finest of people. Why am I going down this uh, road? Well, because I have travelled the highways and byways of the UK in a million taxis and Ubers. And the most common uh, person I encounter is a Pakistani male driver. And to my astonishment, this is what I have found out. When you are being driven by a Pakistani Brit or a British Pakistani and you're in the car for a bit and you talk about things, and I always bring up current affairs, always, always do when I'm in a taxi because I'm a journalist and I'm intrigued and I want to know what people are thinking about things. And I speak with um, these lads and I try and get under their skin once or twice, not often now, but once or twice it'll be said to me, I know you, I've heard your voice, or a brother of mine listens to your programme. Then we talk. You know what I found speaking with Pakistani um, uh, uh, Muslims, uh, p- 
British Pakistani Muslims in this country. This is what I found, almost without exception. These guys know their shit. They're onto it. They're onto the Great Reset. They're onto Agenda 2030. They talk about it. They have a, an acute understanding of it. They're happy to converse about it, to share opinions about it, to talk about it, to ask you. And this is a great tragedy. It's a great tragedy. It's the thing, if I had any hair on my head, I would be ripping it out. This is the great tragedy. Because while we get moved around the chessboard like fucking pawns, human beings, you know, p- placed against one another, enemies created out of one another, we all seem to know, or many of us know from these different communities, from these different identity groups, we seem to know what's really going on. And yet we can't somehow, for whatever reason, look at one another and say, you know what? Like, wouldn't it be wonderful? I know I live in a fantasy world. My brain exists in fantasy land. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Irish people rightly, rightly pissed off by this uncontrolled flood of immigration into Ireland, which is causing chaos in parts of my country, and which Irish people are entitled to question, without being accused of racism or xenophobia. They are not racist, they are not xenophobic. There is no more charitable human being on planet Earth than Paddy Irishman. None. None. I saw this in Waterford, in Tremor, in the 1990s, when there was an influx of refugees from Africa. People in Tremor couldn't do enough for them. The reason there's a rising of people in Ireland against this is because of the volume of it now. It is insane. But the people coming in are human beings. Is there the possibility? Could it ever happen where the righteously indignant people, the native people, could look at the people coming in and say, you know what, and I've said this on this programme too many fucking times, but I'm going to say it again. We have the same enemy. They are playing us off against one another. They are laughing their arses off as they rush headlong to the technocratic, dystopian, nightmarish future they are building. They are building it on the backs of our inability to realise that we are all under the same jackboot. Muslims, Christians, Catholics, Irish, Pakistanis, um, Saudis, Yemenis, Israelis, we are all under the same jack boot. And they win, and they will win until the day comes that we can come to the understanding that we all collectively share the answer. We know what's going on. Innately we know. To our bone marrow, to every fibre of our being, we know what's going on. It doesn't matter what your sexuality is. doesn't matter what colour skin you are, where you come from. The enemy is the same. It's not you, it's not me. But it's difficult when you're in the eye of the storm. Like people are in Ross Cray, like people were in County Mayo. When the government is laughing at you and saying, fuck you and your children and your work prospects and fuck your education prospects. Fuck it. We're going to bust in a whole pile of lads. Fuck you, you're going to take it. It's very difficult to sit down with those people and say, yes, you are being fucked. But do you see the guys coming in on the bus, the guys with the wide eyes, the young, lean men that look different? Do you see them? They're being fucked as well. Do you understand that? 
And can we come to some understanding that we're all being fucked? And can we stop it? Can we look at one another and say, you know what? If we somehow came together, somehow, it would be over in a heartbeat. It's 27 minutes to the top of the hour. It's the Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen. That was a silly rant. This is Cat Stevens then. Now I've been happy lately. Yeah, if he's trying Cat Stevens on the Richie Allen Show Monday's programme. Got an interesting uh, show's coming up this week. Later in the week, you're going you're to like this. Um, a former corporate lawyer and hotelier, right, left corporate law, went into hotels. Lovely man, not going to give his real name. He's going to come on the programme on Wednesday using a pseudonym um, to talk about, well, a lot really, about banking. Okay, um, about bank fraud, but not in terms of telling you things that you already know, but talking about solutions to how you deal with the apparatus of the state, how you deal with the banks, how you deal with local authorities when they're coming after you for taxes, how you deal with income tax, all of this. So a lovely gentleman, I think we're going to call him Brian or Michael. Um, we'll give him a, a name, but he's done a few podcasts on this and um, I've checked him out. He's legit and he's very interesting. He's been writing to me for some time. So that's on Wednesday. You're going to love that. And I think it'll be practically very good. That's Wednesday. I mentioned uh, PCR will be on the program uh, tomorrow. There are more as well. I've lots, lots going on this week. So I have and I've got the diary to hand. So I'll tell you a little bit later on. Monday's program, though. Thanks so much for the messages coming in. KD says, so Molly thinks it isn't a depopulation agenda. Really? She says, yeah, really, KD. You know, not all of us see the same, when, when we look at these agendas, not all of us come to the same conclusions. And that's absolutely fine. Molly is um, b- b- very open-minded and is quite happy to talk to people like yours truly, um, where I do see that there is an element of depopulation here. Of course, of course there is, in my opinion, that is. But she doesn't. We like to get a wide range of views on the Richie Allen Show. Uh, KD says, vaccines have been shown to cause autism. And then she says, the Children's Health Defence Group have exposed this. Sadly, HPV has already shown to affect female fertility. Thank you for that. Hi to Cliff, who says, Richie, we have a, as a country... Uh, a responsibility for those displaced by lunatic politicians. I do not have a problem with controlled immigration. In these parts, for a six-month-old baby, you cannot access a doctor's appointment when you phone in at eight o'clock in the morning. All the slots are gone by the time they pick up. You are told to dial the emergency number and you end up in casualty for a urine test to diagnose a urinary infection. I raise this with local councillors who are more interested in virtue signalling it is a madhouse. It is a madhouse. I saw this last week when my oft-mentioned better half tried to secure an appointment with a GP for a blood test and for a bit of an exam. It's impossible. No, we can't. No, next week. No phone back in the morning. It's ridiculous. Of course. This is why I said, and I'm not trying to be all things to all men. That's not what I was doing in that long-winded nonsense a few minutes ago. I'm not trying to be all things to all men. What I said, I stand by. I totally believe it. The problems in the communities, which are hit by the migration, are real. I'm not siding with everybody. I'm telling the truth. It isn't the fault 
of the people who come in to the community, the people who came in from Poland or who came in from other parts of Eastern Europe, Ukraine, or who came in from Africa. It's not their fault. It's not their doing. It's not their agenda. That's why I said we're all fucked by the same agenda. And if the day ever comes when people extend the hand of friendship to one another, whether it's the migrant who says, do you know what I've been running from? Do you know what was done to my country? And do you know why? See, this is the question. It's not, a, it, it's not the case of talking about, well, you know they destroyed Iraq, don't you? We know that. It's, it's down to trying to reach an understanding of why did they do it? Why? What is the end goal or the end game? And can we talk about that? That's why I told you about speaking with Asians in this country, British Asians, British Muslims. They know what's going on. And I have a feeling that's why they take, you know, situations like real problems like Rochdale and Rotherham, and it's still going on in Oldham and other parts of the country. Absolutely, I'm not denying this. But they take it and they whip it up and they use it to demonise the entire British Muslim population. Not in the minds of you or me, but in the minds of ultra-conservatives who love it and they grab it and they run with it. And they jump on bandwagons with idiots like Tommy Five Names Robinson to demonise. This is why they do it. They do it because within the British Muslim population there is a large body of people who know the score. They know what's going on just as much as you do. And of course the establishment, or the hidden hand, doesn't want us to meet. Never the twain must meet, or the twain must never meet. Never. Let's do everything we can to prevent these people from understanding that they are all victims of it. That's why identity politics was so was such a wonderful tool for these tyrants. Wasn't it wonderful when you think about it? Imagine, you can imagine them sitting around in Bilderberg groups 50 years ago. Do you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll subdivide whole cities into 60 different fucking communities. That's what we'll do. We'll get everybody... This is why they invented language like the gay community. There is no community. Uh, the motor neuron disease community... I heard this. I, I know, I know. I'm repeating myself. I said this to you last year. Everything is community these days. The, 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 the Muslim community. The Irish co- community. The, the gay and the trans community. There's none. This was the brainchild of very clever despots. How do we... How do we, how do we introduce into lived life, into life, into, into daily life, how do we introduce policies which will ultimately give us more and more control over the lives of people? Give us the powers to turn the world into one great big open air prison where we get to stalk people, every one of them, morning, noon and night. We get to bump off many of them, but those who remain, we get to take ownership of them. How do we do that without them copying on to us? And one of the answers to that conundrum for the tyrants was identity politics. Let us induce, let us... Let us, let us give the impression to everybody, 
let us suggest to people, and this is almost like a post-hypnotic suggestion, it is done through the media, of course, it's done through television, through film, through radio, through magazines, and of course increasingly through social media. Let us give everybody an identity. Let us induce people into an ideology where they seek out an identity, where they seek out identity groups. Let's create hundreds of identity groups, whether it be... I mean, you go back to the 50s and 60s they were doing this, identity groups, through fashion and through music, the mods and the rockers and, and then the punks and all of this shit, right? Let's place identity groups there for people that they can neatly pigeon themselves, pigeonhole themselves in to where they think as a member of an identity group. Let's do that. And let's create more and more and more and more identity groups, more and more exotic ones. And here's the killer. Let us suggest to each identity group that they are the greatest victims of them all, that they are the most put upon, the most beleaguered, the most attacked group of all. And let all of these identity groups fight amongst themselves as, as to who is the most oppressed, who is the most beaten down, the most downtrodden, the most disadvantaged, the most, uh, the most hated. Let's do that. And they'll kill themselves. Gleefully. Not, not literally, but metaphorically. They will spend their days trying to tear one another apart, all of these identity groups, while we go along, we go on our merry way, doing the things we want to do, which is turn to prison, as, sorry, the country, the world, as I've already said, I'm repeating myself now again, we turn it into one great big prison where we take complete control over people's lives, where they have no autonomy, none, none. And we can introduce crazy, stupid, ridiculous concepts. And if identity groups didn't exist, and if people weren't fighting over who's the biggest victim, who is the most oppressed, people would see through fantasies like climate change theory. Of course they would, if we weren't tearing each other's throats out about, about things that don't matter. It'd be like, what? Climate change. So... The atmosphere is made up of all of these trace gases and CO2 is only 0.041%. Is that right? And of that, we as humans only contribute 0.005% of that. And, and that's supposed to be killing the planet, is it? And, and we're supposed to now completely change the way we live and stop flying and stop driving. You see, this wouldn't happen without identity politics without what's going on in Ross Cray in Ireland today, what went on in America with Black Lives Matter. Wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. But they set man against man through the creation of these groups, these pigeonholes, and human beings were all too happy to jump into them, to think and to speak as an, as a socialist. Well, as a socialist, well, as a gay man, well, as a straight conservative man... Well, as a gay lesbian woman, well, as a conservative, well, as a centrist, I think this. But you're none of that. You're neither gay, you're neither straight. Now, we are, of course, some of us sleep with members of the opposite sex. We build our lives with them. Some of us build our lives with members of the same sex. I'm not saying that. Of course, that's true. But in reality, that's not what you are. 
Ike wrote a fantastic book years ago. David Ike, remember who you are. That's not what you are. That's an identity. What you are is something else completely uh, different. It's completely different. You are not the ism. You're not the so. You're not the ist. You're not the socialist. You're not the fascist. Nobody's a fascist. You're not a conservative. You're not a racist. You're nothing. You're something else. And that's what they keep hidden from you, isn't it? It's what they keep you away from. It's that you'll fight with each other. You'll go on Twitter and scream about Donald Trump and Joe Biden and, and elections being ripped, ripped off and all of that fucking bullshit while the wheel turns and the agenda keeps moving forward step by step. It is as simple as that. Says the man who, who, who preaches don't see things in simple absolutes. I know I can be a hypocrite too. William and Derry says, Reggie, surely you can see the people who will end up leading the Muslims in the UK will not be the modern right-thinking kind. It will be the extreme. And the more who comes in from countries that are already under extreme Muslim laws, the faster that will happen, says William in Derry. Darren says, Richie, in a growing world of divide and rule, this merely creates a manipulated distraction to allow the agendas to continue. Confusing the individual prevents those to understand that the puppets are not dictating the rules for our benefit, but to create us, to set us squabbling amongst, amongst each other um, so that we don't stand firm together and demand answers. That's Darren. Thank you, Darren. David says the COVID jab was, as some think, a way of reducing world population, according to Agenda 2021. But is this such a bad thing, uh, says David, calling the sheeple in society to leave us more enlightened people who question everything and don't believe everything the establishment say? That is the first time I've ever seen a positive spin uh, being put on COVID jab death. That is the first comment I've ever had from somebody attempting to positively spin the injuries and deaths from the COVID shots. David says, is it such a bad thing because the sheeple took the jabs? Feck them, they're stupid, says David. That leaves a more enlightened society. <laughs> I tell you what, David. I don't know. I don't think so. I'd rather people didn't take the jabs and didn't die, to be honest. But that's an interesting take on it. Sasha says, if we run from the UK, since things are getting so bad and seem likely to be getting so much worse, um, we're going to hope that people are prepared to welcome us, says Sasha. Hi to Kev, who says in yesterday's mail on Sunday, experts are urging the NHS to issue ivermectin for a scabies outbreak. I didn't see that, Kev. Is that right? Was that in the mail on Sunday yesterday? They're urging the NHS to give ivermectin for scabies. They know what's coming, a.k.a. the, AKA the Vanden Bosch variant, a.k.a. disease X, says Kev. I had scabies as a child. Do you know, in Waterford, when you were a child, if you had scabies, which is a little mite, it's a microscopic little mite, which burrows itself under your skin, you can't see it, and it eats your skin and your dead skin, and it causes big lumps to come out on your skin. When I was a kid, they sent you into hospital to be treated for a few days if you had scabies. They changed your bedsheets three times a day. And they put this emulsion on your skin, which burned and made you scream. In fact, they stuck you in a bath. I remember me and my brother getting chucked into a bath because we had scabies. 
which was amazing really because my mother was OCD clean you know obsessive compulsive disorder clean was unwell as she was she was she was like Howard Hughes that's how crazy she was about cleanliness but we had the scabies anyway and we were sent into hospital for a bit until it went away. Andy says, The mainstream media news on my laptop the other day showed a right-wing march of Nazis doing the Nazi salute and they labelled it as right-wing. Therefore, I think it's a psyop to show Joe Public what is right-wing. So when they claim that normal people who are protesting and, and when they are called right-wing... It makes that association in the minds of people reading the papers. It's geniuses, Andy. It might be, Andy. You might be right. Listen, the Irish men and women asking questions about the about the sanity or questioning the sanity of bussing in people to an area which is starved of public services. They're not right-wing, those Irish people. They're pretty much common sense in their thinking. But yeah, that's a good shout, that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, they're trying to equate ordinary Irish men and women. People with names like Bridie. Bridie, for fuck's sake. Right? And and Muckle. Muckle. Guys like Muckle, which is a kind of an abbreviation of Michael. Bridie and Muckle. They're ordinary people. They don't have a racist bone in their body. They're trying to associate them with fucking Romper Stomper. Yes, you're right. Exactly. 100%. That is what they do. It's what the legacy media does. And it does it most successfully. It does. Doesn't it? Bridie over there. She's a Nazi. She's fucking not. She can't get a dentist appointment. You know, with the population, with the existing population numbers. And now you want to bring in more people. I said it on the papers this morning. Net migration to the UK to the year June 2023 was 672,000 people. You've got that right. Last year, when you subtract those who left the UK to go and live in Spain, those fucking idiots who sold their council houses to buy a bar in Spain and they faced financial ruin, when you subtract those idiots from those who came in, you're left with 672,000 people. Fuck me! Last year, the UK grew by the size of two very large cities. Because if you have 672,000, you get about 336,000, 336, right, yes. Oh, Jesus, my mathematics is good. My ma- I should be on countdown. So 336,000 is a big city. or a, No, it isn't. It's a small city or a large town. Last year, the UK grew by two small cities or by two large towns. It is insane. It is insane. While there are 7 million people already waiting to be treated on the NHS for serious issues. So when people ask questions about that, they're not Nazis. They're not far right. They are completely legitimate people. Anyway, I've ranted on long enough. That was an interesting hour. Uh, Thank you so much to Molly Kingsley for gracing us with her presence in the first hour. Us for them and the new book, We. I will put links to that on the podcast notes when I do the podcast notes shortly. Okay. Um, uh, That's pretty much it for me today. This programme will be repeating on the app for the programme, for the app for the show, uh, overnight. But the show will be on all the podcast channels, including podomatic.com, 
it'll be on the podcast channels in around about a half an hour's time. Alrighty, alrighty. Listen, in the meantime, you'll hear from me again, sorry about that, you'll hear from me again tomorrow morning with the Papers, uh, the Papers podcast will be on on, on air sometime just after 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, The Richie Allen Show will be back tomorrow Tuesday at 4 o'clock UK time. And that definitely is it for me. Until tomorrow, thanks for listening. Closing out the programme today with a bit of self-indulgence. Bruce the Boss Springsteen finishing us up. Thank you. See you tomorrow. Bye now.